Father, I come before you. We all come before you, and we give you first thanks. As your scriptures declare, we should give thanks in all things. And for this day, we give you thanks because of the resurrection, the fact that we have someone to look to, a Redeemer, a Messiah, that gives us forgiveness of sins as we request it. We would ask that we could communicate this message to others, but Father, help it. Help us to make it real in our lives, that we're not just simply observers, but we act as your bride, the participants in this idea of salvation and bringing it to fruition. And as we go through your word today, we ask that you would enlighten us even more. Bring us more of your word that we may have more of you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the country of England, in the year 1215, and thanks to years of disastrous foreign policy and heavy taxation, King John was facing a rebellion by the country's powerful barons. The king agreed to what was known as a Charter of Liberties, and it was named the Magna Carta. Now, what is the Magna Carta? What did it do? Well, it made everyone subjected to the law, even the king, and it guaranteed three things. It guaranteed the rights of individuals, the right to justice, and the right to a fair trial. And one of the signers of the Magna Carta was Stephen Langton. The Pope had named him the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop Langton was instrumental in subduing the baronial unrest and put increasing pressure on the king for concessions. By the way, the founding fathers love to quote the Magna Carta, how this should be the rule of law that was over everyone, not any one person would be in charge. And there is more to the story than this, and there is something special about Archbishop Stephen Langdon. Has anyone ever heard of him, who he is? No one has heard of him. He is an individual that was responsible for the chapter divisions in our Bible. He completed that work in 1227. So when we look at our Bible, we have chapters in the Bible. He was responsible for it. And the Wycliffe Bible, which was written in 1382, and this is before the printing press, it was the first Bible to use Langton's chapter division. In 1551, Robert Estenine, also known as Stephanus, added these verse divisions in his fourth edition of the Greek New Testament. So that's where we got the chapters and the verses. And when we want to quote somebody uh, a verse, normally we start out with the chapter and verse. Then we quote the words that are there. Like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Or Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Or how about John twenty twenty eight? And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Or Psalm 119, verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Of course, that's an encouragement to have the word of God in there. And if we have the address, it's even better. Now, for centuries, this was not the case. They didn't quote chapter and verse. Remember, this only came about in 1227. For centuries, literally for centuries, when people wanted to quote the Bible, the Old Testament specifically, they would say, it is written, or are they not written, or the words of the scroll. If you look up in the scriptures, that's how they used to refer to it. And this was a recounting of what was written 
and they would state the verse. They'd say, in this particular scroll or in the scroll of Isaiah. And then when Jesus, <clears throat> when he announced his ministry, they brought out the scroll of Isaiah. He found the place where he wanted to read, I believe it was chapter 61, and he, he read through that. And that's what he did. And they would use this little stylus or a, a little uh, finger pointer. It looked like a little hand, and they wouldn't ever touch the scriptures. They would just kind of read it along. Now, Jesus did this, and in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. So he refers to the scroll. He doesn't refer to a chapter and verse. And when Jesus was on the cross over 2,000 years ago, even though he was going to his death, he pointed to the scriptures during the time of his greatest suffering and pointed all the people to the scriptures. That's what he did. Now, how did he do that? Remember, he didn't start with a book, a chapter, and a verse, but he quoted what the prophet wrote. And what was that thing? that the prophet wrote, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, King James? Now, that's what he said. There's some deep meaning in this that when the father looked at him, he could look at him no more because the sin of the world was placed upon him and God the father cannot look upon sin. And so the fellowship was interrupted. He never ceased being God. He never ceased having a quote-unquote relationship with God, being part of the Godhead. But the fellowship, the interaction was temporarily muted. But what Jesus was doing when he was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was pointing out to the people, go to Psalm 22. That's what he was saying. And we're going to go to Psalm 22. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to take that out. Now, this would have been on what we would call Good Friday when he was crucified and he was on the cross. But this is a prophetic psalm about Jesus going to the cross that was recorded almost a thousand years prior to the advent of Jesus the first time. So in Psalm 22, in verse 1, it opens with that phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? And again, although the fellowship with the Father was interrupted, he never stopped being one with the Father. He never ceased to be God. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in verse 2 of Psalm 22, it says, Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I am not silent or am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel, and you are Father's put their trust they trusted and you delivered them they cried to you and were saved if you are in you they trusted and were not disappointed but i am a worm and not a man scorned by men and despised by the people now this is vivid imagery here and they would have understood what this was now some of you in here have seen me bring in some prickly pear cactus and it would have white scale on it and that white scale i would take a plastic fork or a knife and I would scrape that, that scale that would be on the prickly pear cactus. If you just drive around here in East County and you see that cactus and you see all these little white spots, if you go up and you smear that scale that is on there, it's an insect, 
it will turn crimson red. Now, what he is referring to here is an insect. He says, I am a worm. That's really not a good translation. Having studied this a little bit, this particular insect is what is known as scale. And the particular scale that he's referring to, it's in the Middle East, and it it attaches itself to usually oak trees. And when you look at it, it's kind of a reddish, pinkish, crimson color. But if you smear it, it turns blood red. And that's where they used to get dye. And they would collect these little scale. And they're tiny. They're not very big. Maybe as the biggest one would be the size of an eraser on a number two pencil. Uh, just that size diameter. And they would be a crimson red. And what would happen is the parent scale, the mother scale, would go and attach herself to the oak tree would never leave that spot. They would lose all mobility at that point. The eggs would be laid after they mated when they still had mobility. And then the eggs would hatch. And those eggs, once they hatched, they would eat the mother. And then they would spread out and they would do the same thing. They would mate and they would solidify themselves or attach themselves to the oak. And Jesus said he became a worm And he says, I became a scale. And this particular scale, like I said, if you rub it and wipe it, the blood just flows out of it. Or it looks like blood that flows out of it. So that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him let him deliver him since he delights in him yet you brought me out of the womb you made me trust in you even at my mother's breast from birth I was cast upon you from my mother's womb you have been my God do not excuse me do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help many bulls surround me strong bulls of Bashan Encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And you lay in the dust or lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Crucifixion was not even invented at this time. It was the... Uh, before the Persians, uh, there was a, a group of people, I can't think of the name of the people, the Assyrians. The Assyrians started crucifixion, then it was uh, went all the way up to the Romans, and the Romans perfected the crucifixion after they got it from the Persians. And the way that they perfected it is when you place the arms out on the cross... Uh, what happens is the shoulders start to dislocate. And when they pierce the ankles, it becomes very difficult to breathe. It's easy to breathe in, but it's very difficult to exhale. And what would have to happen is the individual being crucified would have to push up 
on the spike that was going through their ankles and try to exhale. And eventually they suffocated. But during that time, the bones, like the arms and even the wrist, could pull out of joint, the shoulders, all of those. And it was an excruciating form of death. And it says his tongue cleaved to the roof of his mouth. His mouth was completely dry. He had lost a lot of blood. We know that he was beaten by a flagellum. Now, a flagellum is not simply a whip. Cat of nine tails would be another name for it. It would have these leather straps that would go out. And on the end of that would be bone or metal of some type that would be very sharp or even hooks. And those hooks would grab the flesh of the individual and actually pull it off once they got hit. If you've seen The Passion of Christ, that is probably not even close to how severe it actually was for Jesus. And we know Jesus was beat a couple of times and so if you put all that together with the crown of thorns the piercing it is just simply a horrible way to die and he was experiencing that for us now going on he says in verse 19 but you O lord be not far off O my strength come quickly to help me deliver my life from the sword my precious life from the power of the dogs rescue me from the mouth of the lion save me from the horns of the wild oxen i will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation i will praise you you who fear the lord praise him all you descendants of jacob honor him revere him all you descendants of israel for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one he has not hidden his face from him but he has listened to his cry for help from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly before those who fear you i will fulfill my vows the poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Prosperity will serve him future generations will be told about the lord they will proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn for he has done it by the way this includes us once we are resurrected from the dead and the people who go through the tribulation period that live in the millennial reign of christ we will be instructing them so he goes through the time where he goes through the crucifixion in psalm 22 david is prophesying about this and of course david had no idea he would be prophesying the words that would be fulfilled in jesus christ he was looking at his own circumstances as he wrote this there were so many people who were against him, but jesus is the one who fulfills it and at the end of this psalm we see the glorification that takes place not only for himself because everybody's going to praise him but the poor will be fed everyone will have a place to dwell and not only that but during the thousand year millennial reign of christ we will be witnesses and, and so it's a glorious prophecy that has been delivered to us now everything that jesus experienced on the cross was written about like i said a thousand years earlier the crucifixion the burial the resurrection of christ was foretold for those thousand years and even before it's literally thousands of years old how god was preparing us for what would come in the crucifixion death burial and resurrection of jesus now he did this by using foreshadowing 
and metaphors. You guys remember English class in high school or junior high? You had English lit and you had to read a bunch of stuff. And then you had composition. You had to write a bunch of things. And you had to learn the different modes of writing, whether it was a simile, a metaphor, whether it was a narrative. You had to learn all that stuff. And that's what's employed in the scriptures. And that's what God used to communicate to us that Jesus would be coming. Now, <clears throat> I went previously, the last week, over Daniel chapter 9, they gave to the exact day when Jesus would present himself to the nation of Israel. And he came on a, a small donkey, young donkey that had never been ridden. And when he presented himself, then the nation of Israel received him. Now that was on the 10th of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar. When Jesus did that, they said, Oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Son of David. And the Son of David is a messianic phrase. But Jesus presented himself and the people in Israel said, That's him. Well, they were choosing the Lamb of God for the sacrifice which would take place on the 14th of Nisan. And that would just be a few days later. Now, once the lamb was selected, they had to inspect the lamb to make sure it was all pure. But it, it, that was the time frame that it was supposed to take place. So from the 10th of Nisan, that's when the lamb was selected. Then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days. And during that time, it was the Passover and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so that's the first thing. I'm going to look back at some of the, the details of the Old Testament, how God told this to us over and over and over so that we wouldn't miss it. A young child that is going astray, like a two-year-old or a three-year-old, I've mentioned this before, when you're trying to correct them, do you sit them down and tell them, like if they're going to be in danger, they're reaching for something. Like my daughter one time, she reached up and put her hand on the red-hot coil on an electric range. <clears throat> we didn't see her doing it, but when she pulled it away, there was a nice bunch of rings <clears throat> on her hand. And so if you see something like that happen, what do you usually do? You usually cry out, you say no, and you say it more than one time to get the message across so they might hear you and be shocked and, and avoid the disaster which is there. Well, God was doing that softly and loudly over and over and over you know he sent his prophets how many prophets did he send we don't know the number of prophets he sent now we have isaiah jeremiah ezekiel daniel hosea joel amos obadiah jonah micah nahum habakkuk zephaniah haggai zechariah malachi and then we have the new testament and all the prophets that came through there we have all of these guys that came along and said jesus is the way he's the truth and the life anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life how many times do we have to be told that Jesus is the one. He, he is the way. And see, this is what happened to the Jews. And the Jews would hear it and, oh, yes, that's the word of God. But no, we're not going to accept Christ. And because of that, they were condemned. They were put under a curse because of the rejection. So first we have the 10th of Nisan, the lamb who was to be selected, the date of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ to the exact day he came there. Then he was to be without blemish. The land had to be inspected. Now, when it, it came to the inspection of Jesus, remember, he went back to the temple and he cleared the temple. The money changers were there. You know the story about the money changers, how your shekel wasn't good, the, the Roman... Uh, 
a mode of money, whether it's denarius or a shekel, that had to be changed into the temple money, and they charged for that. And your model of lamb wasn't good enough for the sacrifice, and so you had to buy one of their models on their lot in the back lot, and they would give you a lamb, and then they take yours as a trade-in, and they would put that off to the side and probably sell it to somebody else. It was just a racket that was going on. Jesus went in there. He made a whip. It was one of two times that he did that. He turned over the tables of the money changers, and they're just standing back. I don't know why they didn't try to stop him, but of course he's got... And he's clearing out his father's house. And so all this is going on. They're inspecting him the whole time. Like, who are you? And if you remember, he went before Pontius Pilate. And they examined Pontius Pilate. And then he went to Herod. And Herod looked at him. Before that, he was at Caiaphas. And, you know, everybody was examining him. And even Pontius Pilate found no wrongdoing in him. So you take the lamb who was presented at the triumphal entry. Everybody received him and said, that's the lamb. Then he goes through the examination. Pontius Pilate examines him and says, or he announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Luke chapter 23, verse 4. <clears throat> and then not only was he examined, but they had to come up with false witnesses to accuse him. And so nobody could accuse him of wrongdoing or sin. He even challenged them to find some sin or some error, and they couldn't find any. So the Lamb of God was without blemish. Now, once he was taken to Pilate, of course, we know the Jews beat him. We know that uh, Pilate had him flogged in John chapter 19, verse 1. He was scourged in Matthew chapter 27. Verse 26, and this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Uh, Now, women, I don't think that you could understand this, but when men have beards, even to pull one hair in the right spot, it will cause the eyes to water. It just is excruciating to have that happen. Imagine a whole bunch of hairs just being pulled out from the beard. How difficult that would be. It probably rips some flesh off of the face because those, unlike on top of the head, the beard is very tough, very sandpaper-like. And depending on where you uh, originate from, whether it's from one of the European countries like Italy. A lot of times in Italy, those guys will have beards that just will not cease. Or in the Middle East, their beards are just thick and full. If you remember Absalom, the hair in his head, you know, it's just so heavy, it had to be trimmed once a year. The the guy looked like a banshee out there sometimes. had to pull the hair all the way back. If he had a hoodie on, when he pulled the hoodie back, it just bull out, you know. And probably his beard was the same way that could have called him like Esau. Esau was harried. Not only did he have hair on his face, but his whole body was probably a sweater the way it was. And so you pull out that hair, I mean, it's just going to be super excruciatingly painful. Well, Jesus had his beard pulled out just like that. Isaiah 52 verses 13 and 14 says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. That's how much he was beaten. Now, maybe you've seen some boxing events. I I used to like to watch Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, sting like a bee, something like a butterfly, sting like a bee. 
And he was fantastic to watch, you know. And then Leon Spinks, that guy was just a brute. The way that he would throw a punch. And you would see that. And sometimes these guys, they'd get a a black eye or a real puffy eye that they couldn't see. And they'd slit the upper eyelid so the eye would open so they could see while they were boxing. Well, Jesus, I'm sure... He had two puffy black eyes. His face was probably real puffy. Remember, they, they used to play, quote, a game where they'd put a sack over his head and they'd beat him. And they would say, who hit you? Prophesy to us. Who hit you? Just brutalized beyond all recognition, just like the scripture says here. And that was prophesied in the Old Testament that that is how he would be treated. And then the entire sacrificial system was set up to point to Jesus. The feasts, the festivals, they were set up to point to who Jesus was and what he was going to do, like the Feast of Pentecost that happened when or was brought to fulfillment when the church was created, the Feast of Passover, which led to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of these things were to point to Jesus Christ and his superiority. When he was in Egypt, or excuse me, when the Jews were in Egypt, the entire set of plagues that were set up were to show the inferiority of the Egyptian gods, the sun god, Ra, and the the god of frogs and flies, and all of those things were meant to be ridiculed, and all of that points to Jesus Christ, and Egypt is a form of the world. The way that you would look at Egypt, it was the metropolis of the day, people would want to go to Egypt, the wealth of the world was there. But that's what the world is for us. The world for us is another Egypt. And we are dwelling in Egypt. Now, the epitome of that might be someplace like Las Vegas or Shanghai or some other place. We'd look at that and say, that's the world. That's where the wealth is located. That's where the fun and excitement is all being prepared and offered to the people. And God tells us, well, the world is like that for us who are believers. It's the temptations. It's God says, don't love the world or the things of the world. And we're to forsake those things. But that's what Egypt was for the Jews. And the Jews were slaves in Egypt. We are in the world and we are slaves to sin in the world. And Jesus comes along and redeems us. It was a sacrificial lamb of the 10 plagues. The last one was the sacrificial lamb that was to take away the Jews out of their enslavement. Jesus is the one who is a sacrificial lamb that takes us out of enslavement from this world. And so you can see the metaphor, you can see the foreshadowing which is there in the Old Testament. And also the lamb was silent to the sacrifice. Jesus was silent in Matthew chapter 26 verse 62. Says then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, "Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these have that these men are bringing against you?" But Jesus remained silent, and that was prophesied that he would do that. Isaiah fifty three seven. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Now again, how many times do we have to be told? before we understand that something is true or we should pay attention to it. I'm going to give you about a total of 15 things here. I'm about halfway through. But there's more than that. You can just keep on going through the Old Testament and see how Jesus fulfilled these things. For instance, his body was taken down from the cross so that it would not be there in the morning. When they would celebrate the Passover, if you remember the Passover, they'd take the lamb, they'd slaughter it, put the blood on the doorpost and the lentils, 
And they had to eat the entire lamb. And it was to be roasted. The whole thing was to be roasted. You didn't gut it, the head, the entrails, everything. You'd put it all over the fire and just roast it. And whatever was not consumed, it was to be burned up. It was not to remain until morning. So Jesus' body did not remain on the cross until morning. Another thing that not too long ago, I think last year, I talked about the scapegoat. With Barabbas, remember I told you that Barabbas is not the proper way to say his name. It's Bar-Abbas is the way we're supposed to say his name. And we know that Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon was the son of Jonah. That's what the Bar represents. And so Barabbas or Bar-Abbas means son of of the father remember they said bring us out barabbas we'll take him instead and around our june or july in the month of tishri this is when the day of atonement takes place it's almost six months removed from the day of passover and at that point that's where they take the two goats and one is sacrificed and the other one is left to go in the wilderness and all the sins are put in that goat to go in the wilderness that pointed to jesus christ and barabbas that was prophesied that that would take place. And you can only see it after it actually happens. So Jesus, he is the son of God. Barabbas was the son of the father. And I told you in the Coptic and Syriac versions of the Bible, Barabbas's first name is Jesus. Jesus, son of the father. And Jesus, the son of God, There were two, the goats were prophesied to be those two. One was released into the wilderness, carry the sin away, and the other was sacrificed. And that points again to Jesus Christ. Now, the lamb was to be slaughtered in the tabernacle or in the temple. Now, anyone, even even today, I I just got this news article uh, from the 14th, today's the 17th. The police arrested on Wednesday night four Israeli Jews who stated that they have plans to sacrifice a lamb on Friday on the Temple Mount ahead of the Passover holiday. Interestingly, that the, or it's interesting that the Jews would not be able to sacrifice a lamb on the Temple Mount, but that's where it's prescribed to happen. They can't do it. Also, they have stopped sacrificing lambs altogether. If you go to a Jewish Seder, what do you get? Gavelta fish. You get some of that. You get some chicken. You know, you can have some chicken. But lamb is really not prepared during the Jewish Seder where they celebrate the Passover. A couple of things have changed. The rabbi said, oh, hey, we'll do it this way, you know. And we can't sacrifice on the Temple Mount. And the Jews want to reinstitute that sacrifice. And by the way, that will come. That will come with the advent of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. They'll be able to sacrifice again. But they have no sacrifice for their sin as prescribed by the Old Testament. And one of the interesting things about this is the lamb was supposed to be one year old. Now, if you looked at us and we say, well, how old are you? And a little child, one year old child. You say, that's a baby. But a lamb is a full-grown adult at one year old. Jesus was a full-grown adult at one year old, was considered a, a an adult at that point. You know, some 16-year-olds, they think that they're adults. Their brain hasn't even finished developing yet. It doesn't finish developing until age 25. And they think that they know everything. And once they hit 30, they realize they didn't know everything that they thought they knew. Well, Jesus was a, a full-grown adult. And when 
the land was offered to them, and we know that it had to be examined to make sure that it was pure. Now, even today, they're trying to figure out, well, how are we going to do this? The Temple Institute is ready to have this sacrificial lamb. They're preparing everything that needs to take place. By the way, I, I just heard, too, that they got a new shipment of those particular scales, you know, for the, the blood mixture or the dye. And some of that dye has to be used in the, the temple services. They just got a, a new shipment of those. They're pretty excited about that. And so they're, they're trying to offer this lamb on the temple mount. And also they have offered money for this. Uh, it says, if you just get arrested and make the effort, you'll be financially compensated to the tune of $124 if you get arrested for trying to do this on the temple mount. And if they get arrested with a lamb or a kid, they will receive $248 if they get on the Temple Mount to do this. And if they succeed in sacrificing a Pascal lamb, that's another name for the Passover lamb, they will get a total of $3,103. And so they're trying to encourage the sacrifice to take place on the Temple Mount. What will happen if they sacrifice on the Temple Mount? World War III, the Muslims, will, their hair will turn on fire and they will not accept this at all. Rocks will be going over the uh, Western Wall and, and, and they just will not have it. So the lamb is supposed to be sacrificed in the temple or in the tabernacle. And a, another interesting thing about this is whenever these families would do this and what would happen is they would come to the temple, they'd wait for the temple to be opened, they would bring their lambs there, they would be inspected. Once it was inspected, they would let them in. The priest would sacrifice it. Then they would grab some of the blood that was being poured out and they would sprinkle it in front of the altar. That's what was to be done. And then they would take it home and they would feed their entire family. So it was supposed to be a family. And that's another thing too. A whole family was to eat the one lamb. It wasn't one lamb per person. How big is the family? What? How many people do you have to have to consume a whole lamb? You have to have quite a few people. I mean, a dozen or more people there. And if whatever you don't eat, you have to burn it up. Well, how big is the family of God? Big. How many lambs do we have to receive? Do we have to have sacrificed for the family of God? One. You see the, the imagery there? So it's a big family, one lamb. God's family is a big family, one lamb. Now, you continue with this, and the doorposts and the lintels in the Old Testament. I always thought in my mind that when you go to the door and you're putting the blood, you dip the hyssop in the blood and you touch the top, right? Now, normally you touch the middle, right? But then I always thought in my mind, you take the hyssop and go up and down the sides, Right? That's not really how they did it. And even though if you look it up, pictures of that, they will have those kinds of pictures. Except a few have this, like that, and then like this. And if you're standing at shoulder height, what does that look like? It looks like a cross. You know, same thing with the nation of Israel. Depending on who you listen to, when the tabernacle was set up, there were tribes to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. Some people think, well, it's just a big circle. It wasn't a circle. You had to be lined up to the north, south, east, and west. That means it was also, according to the uh, population of these different tribes, 
like above or to the north, it would have been shorter. To the south, it would have been longer. To east and west, it would have been about equal in size. What does that look like? It looks like the cross. You know, and, and so you look at this and go, wow, the, the imagery is all over the place. Now, is that true? Is that not true? It just depends on who you believe in or who you trust to come up with this stuff. But it has been deposited for us to kind of examine. Now, another thing I want to bring up. Remember King David? King David committed adultery and murder. And there's hope for us. You know, hopefully none of you are murderers or adulterers and gone out and committed the acts. And if you are, there's still forgiveness. But in the Old Testament, there was no forgiveness for an adulterer. There was no forgiveness for a murderer. You couldn't bring a bull or a lamb and say, I committed adultery, here's the sacrifice. No, couldn't do that. You know, there were several offerings. There's a sin offering, guilt offering, peace offering, grain offering, burnt offering, and they were for different things. But none of them was for an adulterer or a murderer. You guys know the penalty for adulterers and murderers? They were to be killed. That was it. So under the Old Testament law, David was to be killed for what he did. And David, he wrote about this in Psalm 51. He said, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. So he is saying a burnt offering or a sin offering or any type of offering is not going to do. Any kind of sacrifice is not going to do. He goes on to say the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So he shows us the way for forgiveness. It was this idea that there is not a single bull or ram or bullock that could take away sin. It had to be a broken and contrite heart. And that was, uh, gave us the ability, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ gave us the ability to go and ask for that forgiveness with a broken and contrite heart. So even King David would have been condemned, but God told him, you will not die. But after he committed adultery and all that, of course, God took uh, the son that was born because of this adulterous relationship. So we also know Jesus was surrounded by the power of the people who had uh, the ability to kill him. You know, the Jews and the Romans were there. Scripture talks about this in Psalm 22, verse 12 that we read. It says, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. In the area of Bashan, they had these large cattle that were out there, and the bulls were massive. If, uh, you guys know the difference between a bull and a steer, right? If you go to the rodeo, there's going to be steers. <clears throat> and then there's the bulls only rodeo. I can remember being there when a full-grown bull got up under the stands, and it, oh, it was mayhem, people flying off of the stands, and the bull ended up getting out, and re- it jumped the fence. Now, if you've been to the rodeo over there, it, it jumped where the people sit. It went right over and into the stands. Then it jumped back over and it jumped over the gate and went on to 67. And of course, they had to put it. It's like, whoa, this is exciting, you know, to see this. And nobody got hurt uh, as a result of this, but it, it was a pretty big deal. And that bull, he was massive. He, he wasn't just a little bitty guy. And he was mad, you know, bulls. 
don't ever go into a pasture where a full-grown bull is located. That's the imagery that God wants to communicate with the people that were so powerful they could take Jesus' life. And that was prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 12. And also says in that same chapter, in verse 18, they cast lots for his clothes. They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And that is fulfilled in John chapter 19, verse 24. We know that they were casting lots for his clothes. You know, it is said that even afterwards, the shroud of Turin, whether you believe that that is the real burial cloth of Jesus or not, um, it, it easily has become an idol for many people. And the clothing for somebody like Jesus, a prophet, could have been uh, worshipped. And, and, of course, we have no idea where those are now, and that's probably for our benefit. And then the final thing that we have here is the veil in the temple was torn in two. Now, if you went to the temple, the tabernacle itself, if you went inside the first chamber, would have been 15 feet by 30 feet. If you went beyond that, like behind the curtain here, that would have been 15 feet by 15 feet, and you would have had the Ark of the Covenant. As you are walking up this way, on my right or on your left, you would have had the lampstand. On my left, on your right, you would have the table of showbread. Right before the curtain, about right here, would have been the altar of incense, and that's what was in there. Now, there was no light inside the Holy of Holies. There was only the Shekinah glory of God in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And so if you walked into that room, the Holy of Holies, it would have been lit, but it would have been like a, a cloud or a mist. And you could still see what was going on in there, but that was the glory of God when God was dwelling with the people. Now, one of the requirements of the priest is that when he went in there, and you've heard it said that, you know, they have the tassels on their robe and they would put pomegranate bells on there so that if they died when they went into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his foot and they could drag him out so they wouldn't have to go in there and die themselves. And because they were going into a place where only the high priest could go in once a year, you've probably heard those stories. Well, when he went in there, he had to carry a censer and that censer would produce smoke. The reason for the smoke is that the room would fill up with smoke so the high priest could not see the mercy seat. If he saw the mercy seat, he would die. And so you're going in there and you're supposed to sprinkle blood on Yom Kippur when the two goats were, one was sacrificed, one was released, and he'd have to sprinkle before the mercy seat the blood of the sacrifice. That's what he'd have to do. So nobody could go in there, and even the person that went in there could not see the mercy seat or they would die. That's how holy it was. And he had to go through this whole ritual, cleansing and sacrifice and bathing to make sure that he was pure before he could go in. And if he was doing his job the way it was exactly prescribed, he would be able to come out. When Jesus died... In the temple, now the temple, I forget how tall it was, maybe 40 feet tall up there. There is a curtain in front of that. Now what is this? Maybe 10 feet tall right here. Imagine this curtain going all the way up. And by the way, when they, I have heard it said that when they would have the curtain wear out, what do you do with the curtain that covers the Holy of Holies? Do you burn it? What do you do? It, it is said that they would just sew it onto the outside, the new one. And so by the time you did that, 
how thick is that curtain with the multiple sewings of that material which would eventually rot? It could have been, they say, and I don't know if this is true or not. You'd have to do an investigation. They say it could have been six inches thick. <clears throat> I can remember as a young boy, we had this thing called the TV guide. <laughs> my, there are four boys in our household. And my dad, uh, we saw this one guy. Uh, he used to be on a program called Mission Impossible. And on Mission Impossible, he got on this uh, game show. I forget what the game show was. Maybe it was to tell the truth or something else. But that particular actor who was the, the, the big man, he was, he was the strong man, they said that he could tear a phone book in half. And he did it on the show. He grabbed the phone book, the live show, and he just ripped that thing in half. And so my dad said to all four of us, we were sitting down watching the program, he got the TV guide and he goes, here, rip the TV guide in half. But back then it was, you know, pretty good thick TV guide. We struggled. We could not rip that thing. And no matter how hard we tried, we could not rip that TV guide in two. The curtain, six inches thick material torn from the top to the bottom when Jesus was crucified. And at that same time, tombs opened up. Graves opened up and people came out of it. What a shock. You're in heaven. Uh, you got to go back. What? Come back. Resurrect. Not resurrected. Resuscitated. The body is reanimated. Not resurrected. And you have to go in and be a witness to people. Imagine Uncle Harry comes to your door. He had died a couple of years earlier. And all of a sudden he's right there. So it showed that Jesus opened up the Holy of Holies for everyone who wanted to go in and he had power over death. That's what the Passover is all about. When Jesus resurrected from the dead on the first day of the week, it was finished, it was done, it was complete. We know that from the book of Hebrews that Jesus went to the altar, the more perfect altar, which was in heaven and he offered his own blood up there. And you examine that. That's why the the, um, tabernacle here and the temple were to be made exactly as the specifications given to Moses. They were to to build it the same way because it's a representation of what's there. So Jesus opened the door for us. If he had not done that, we'd still be lost in our sins. We'd still be offering sacrifices that hopefully the Lord would forgive us. We'd have to be under that yoke of the law. And we are freed from that yoke of the law. That is what Jesus did for us. And all we have to do to be able to receive that forgiveness, you know the verse, you know the chapters. 10, 9, and 10, Romans. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And when you do that, if you're confused about what exactly to say to God, if you want to be saved, of course, it is simply, Jesus, save me. That's all you have to do. There's not a prescribed prayer that you have to say except you confess with your mouth. Well, what about people who are mute that can't confess? God knows. It's in the heart. If you turn to him and say, will you forgive me? And he will. He promises. 1 John 1, 9. He will forgive your sin if you ask him. If you don't ask him, it's going to be like the Jews who refuse to accept the Messiah at the appointed time even though they were told over and over and over they would not they refused and what happens to those people who refuse we know there's eternity 
in hell, uh, the lake of fire, or there's eternity in heaven. As far as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Who said that? It was Joshua. May you say the same thing today. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to receive communion to remember what Jesus did uh, 2,000 years ago on that cross. And Kim's going to come up, and she's going to be playing a song. And if you've ever been unsure, like, why, I don't know if I'm even saved. Well, you can remove all doubt by simply saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. So as Kim is playing and the lights are turned down in the center here, what I'd like you to do is wait a moment, and then as the routine normally goes we come up the first rows first all the way to the back you come up the center and you go around to the side and you grab the little communion cup there and hold on to it and we can participate in receiving it together and again call out to the lord just give him thanks if you desire to do so or also just ask him to save you if you're unsure so go ahead kim